My title today, the subtitle, Milton and the English Revelation, is actually taken from uh, Dr. Christopher Hill's book called Milton and the English Revolution. And um, he, he was, Christopher Hill, by the way, is a central figure in Milton's studies and also in the 17th century. In fact, they say that it's because of Christopher Hill that we know what we do about the 17th century. So he's been a, a very big part of my study, and I wanted to introduce him to you as uh, being a, a very significant part of what I'm doing with Milton today. One of the things that I wanted to try to do today is I, I want to try to get us into the text, but it's going to be kind of a long road to paradise in a certain sense because I wanted to prepare us to a certain degree by showing us Milton's complex thinking. And Milton, of course, was known as not only a poet, but he was a political thinker and a theologian. And so he has those three elements always always, uh, you know, at some point in his work. And they all come together, of course, in Paradise Lost. One thing that was really important to Milton was this idea of the poet-prophet. This was, uh, for, for, from his point of view, seen from the, the Bible tradition. The poets were prophets, and Milton saw himself fitting into that tradition. And there have been, of course, English uh, poets who have felt that they also fit into that tradition since Milton. Uh, by the way, you know, John Milton was a very significant figure. Does anybody know, uh, can anybody tell me who are the three great poets in English? The three great poets. We have major poets, but th these are the three great poets, the three great writers in English. And if you don't know, you can just guess. Shakespeare, okay. Somebody else said it, I think. Okay, I think somebody said Chaucer. Chaucer, Shakespeare, and Milton. Those are the three big ones. And so uh, if you're an English major, you, you have to take at least one class in one of those three. And if you get a doctorate, you have to know something about all three of them. My road to Milton was through my doctorate program. And I chose to study Milton because I had taken classes on the other two already. And I'd always heard that Milton was sort of a challenge. And it's funny because there aren't a lot of Milton courses out there. <laughs> It's, it's, uh, for some reason, Milton is more obscure than the, uh, sometimes than the other two. Although, it's also the case that we know Milton as a, such a, a major writer that he actually, you know, there's this, this line that was coined by Harold Bloom, and it's called the anxiety of influence, and that means that all poets since Milton have kind of trembled in his shadow, because who can ever reach, you know, the greatness of Milton? And so, the idea of setting Milton was sort of daunting, but... I had some experience having read Paradise Lost in Academy, and I had uh, a, a little bit of a knowledge of that, and I was also going through a sort of personal uh, revival, I guess, a spiritual revival in my own life, and I was reading a lot of Ellen White. And because of that, when I started to put the two together, Paradise Lost and Ellen White, I started to see a lot of parallels. And they were important parallels, not just sort of the big picture things, but even uh, at the level of detail. And I'll try to share that with you in, in just a moment, uh, what I mean by that. But even, even some details that Milton um, has in his works, and, and not just Paradise Lost, but other works, fit in very nicely with what Ellen White has said. Well, before we really talk about Milton or Paradise Lost, we need to talk a little bit about the 17th century. And I know that a lot of you already know a lot about the 17th century, but can you tell me some of the things that were happening during the 17th century? We know that Shakespeare had, had uh, 
Shakespeare died in the 17th century, so we had already had a century with Shakespeare and Queen Elizabeth, of course, uh, one, of, one of the more peaceful reigns of England. Um, but we also have, at the same time, a lot of tensions, religious tensions, and they're sort of burgeoning. So scientific ideas, for example. Um, in uh, the 1630s, uh, Galileo was put on house arrest, and Milton actually visited Galileo that's what scholars believe, that he did, there's evidence to believe that he visited Galileo, and that's where he got some of his ideas that he inserted into Paradise Lost, especially uh, the idea of the heliocentric universe, which was not widely believed, of course, at that time. So uh, at the, the, the time of the 17th century was very exciting. There were lots of things happening. And uh, this was the, the age of, of sort of the modern medicine and modern science comes into play. And lots of ideas from the continent to England and from England to the continents as well. And so there were political ideas. And Milton was right in the middle of this. He loved this kind of thing. He loved to go to the coffee houses, for example, and, and talk about the, the wonderful ideas that were that were sort of um, in discourse at the time. And remember also that the Mayflower had arrived in America, so we have uh, people in exploring the new world. And so there, there are just a lot of really exciting ideas at this time and intellectual ideas, and this is part of what Milton uh, was, was so very interested in. Um, and, and also, uh, of course, we have the idyllic scenes. If you think about the country scenes, um, sort of unmarred by mar modern progress. Okay, and then of course we have uh, sort of the darker side as well, right? Um, I didn't mean to put Baroque music in with the dark side, but, but, but it's there, right? Uh, this is the age of Baroque music and some of the composers there that you see, and also um, the plague of 1665. Now, Milton was fortunate to be able to escape London during the plague, and he, went, he got outside of town, and then he was also fortunate the next year because the Great Fire uh, you know, consumed a large share of London. And so he, he probably could have seen the flames from where he was, but he was very fortunate that he was outside of, of London at that time. Okay, so uh, one of the main things that was happening in the 17th century was, you know, you, you often hear about um, periods of time in European history or British history, and usually people will say, oh, that was a time of great political upheaval. Well, definitely that was so in the 17th century, because there, there were a lot of political and religious tensions. Of course, you know that the church and the state are together in England, and so when you say there's political tensions, there, there will also be religious tensions too. And these came about because of a series of, of poor decisions made by Charles I. Uh, but I don't want to blame him completely for it. There were tensions, of course, preceding and surrounding him. But Charles I made a, a series of poor choices that just didn't go well with what was happening. And one of them was he married a French Catholic princess. And that didn't go well with Protestant England, of course. So she brought her courtiers over, and the court became a French Catholic court, and she had a lot of influence on Charles, and this was a problem for a, a lot of people. But um, it definitely affected, um, it affected Charles' view, views on religion. And then he just, he just made some mistakes, and uh, really, unfortunately, that led to his beheading. So uh, England killed its king. That's a big thing that happens in the 17th century. Uh, right now, I just want to take you to John Milton's house.
this was the place where he escaped to after our, when, when the plague hit London. And um, I just want to let you know right now that there are a lot of studies that have just come out in the last year that are sort of uh, trying to debunk or challenge the view that Milton was a stodgy old uh, Puritan. And so is that kind of the view that we have of him? He kind of looks very stern in his photographs, or photographs, in the paintings of him. And, and he has this sort of... Um, he has a sort of uh, prospect of, of sternness and, and kind of this idea of, of stodginess. So uh, what's happening right now is that new scholars are challenging. Uh, Stephen, uh, Stephen Dabrowski is challenging this, this viewpoint that, that Milton was, was a sepial Puritan. So we want to give you a new picture of Milton, in other words, that he was somebody who loved music, for example, and he loved discussions, and he, liked, he would have welcomed you into his home. Now, in 1665, uh, Milton is sort of uh, more at the end of his life, and so he's in the process of writing Paradise Lost. And if you came into his cottage at that time, he would probably ask you uh, to stay for supper, and he would probably uh, have one leg kicked over the chair and just be very casual with you. And he would probably ask you if you would mind taking down a few lines of poetry. And if you were somebody who uh, knew that Paradise Lost was going to be great, <laughs> you would be very, you'd feel very fortunate to sit down and take down some of those lines, I suppose. Uh, there's this idea that he oppressed his daughters by having, making them take down his poetry lines. Uh, you know, the reason ha- he had to do that was because he was blind. So he couldn't write himself at a certain point. But he would give uh, his, his line, he would memorize 40 lines of poetry during the night. And then during the daytime, he would have his friends or whoever was around write down those lines. Not only that, but we're learning about Milton now as a social writer. He, was, he would ask you, now what did you think about that line? And so that's another uh, aspect of Milton that we want to try to bring out now, that he was a social writer as well as um, somebody who was a more, more of a delightful person. At Christ College, Milton was known uh, at Cambridge during his college years as, as, as being so beautiful. Uh, he had long, curly locks of hair. And he was known as being so beautiful that they actually termed him or called him the Lady of Christ College. So uh, he had this sort of name that followed him. And so uh, an earlier poem that he wrote right after graduate school, uh, Milton received a, a master's at Cambridge. An earlier poem has this particular passage in it, which is an invitation to dance. Come and trip it as ye go on the light fantastic toe, and in thy right hand lead with thee the mountain nymph sweet liberty. And if I give thee honor due mirth, admit me of thy crew to live with her and live with thee in unreproved pleasures free. Does that sound like a stuffy old Puritan to you? <laughs> he, he was definitely somebody who, uh, who liked to engage in the social life of his time. And here is just a, a brief sketch of his life. Born in London in 1608, and he began composing poems at the age of 16. And he did uh, a lot of young men back then when they were learning how to write poetry. They would do paraphrases of the Psalms, so that's what he did as well. And he uh, would have known Latin by then. He would have known um, probably several other languages as well, but he would have been translating from Latin. And 
he, so he began teaching at a certain point. And one thing that is not so much important today, but later on it'll, it might be important, is uh, his first wife actually left him a month after they got married. And there are, lo- there are lots of speculations about why that happened. Uh, one, one of the reasons might have been because she couldn't get back because uh, because there was possibly a war uh, happening, they, uh, the roads were bad, and they were closing roads. And so she may not have been able to actually come back. She may have gone home and, and was unable. But it's kind of unlikely because she was gone for three years. <laughs> and so when she finally came back, um, she, she was able to live with him. I think it was because she was so very young. I think she was 17 years old when they got married. So that's probably one reason. Uh, but the, but out of that circumstance, Milton uh, decided to defend divorce. And so he wrote pamphlets on, on uh, why divorce was sometimes necessary because he didn't know when his wife was coming back, see. So there was a, a certain element of self-interest in it. Uh, he became completely blind in his early 40s, and he lost his first wife and son uh, later on in 1652. Uh, they had three children together, uh, who were able to grow up. He then married Catherine Woodcock, and this is the wife uh, that Milton loved. This is the one that he wrote his sonnet to uh, about his wife. And uh, so this is, uh, unfortunately, she died a couple of years after they got married uh, because of childbirth. And then he, um, he, uh, he had to flee for his life because Milton was so involved in the Civil War and he was so involved with uh, the not not so much the fighting itself, but the um, political theories about you know regicide. He actually defended the regicide in certain cases, and because his he was so outspoken with this, um, when the restoration happened in 1660 with Charles II, then he had to run for his life and he had to hide. So he basically was doing this at the same time. Uh, he was writing Paradise Lost. And he actually, there are some people that believe that he started writing while he was in prison. When he got out of prison, uh, he married again, a woman who was quite a bit younger than he was, and then he published uh, Paradise Lost several years later. So he really was able to write Paradise Lost in the peaceful years of his life, which is fortunate. But, of course, he has all these memories of, of um, really tragic events in his life. His life works. The early poetry was sort of uh, more like the passage I read. It was based more on uh, Greek stories and and classical stories, and um, and he was writing kind of more for fame as a poet back then. Then, when we move toward the middle part of his life, he's writing divorce tracts. He's writing political tracts. He writes Areopagitica, which is a major political work that is actually the foundation of our First Amendment. And then later on, you see it's in his later life that he writes the really great um, works, the long works, the epic works. Um, Samson Agonistes was an important one to him because, of course, uh, Samson also goes blind right at the end of his life. And so there are important parallels. Milton writes his life into his works in a very real way. In order to talk to you about freedom and Milton, I have to go to this text. It's, uh, it was actually not so much an argument against freedom of the press, but an argument against censorship or the restrictions, the, the very strict sense of censorship that they had at the time. 
1643, uh, Parliament ordered uh, book licensing, and these were the types of things that they were concerned about, right? So under the new order, no book was to be printed that contained forged, slanderous, scandalous, seditious, libelous, or anti-establishmentarian information. And so Milton uh, mounted this defense, and it had four main arguments. And, uh, of course, there was a lot of um, anti-popery going on at this time, and Milton was uh, anti-popish. And so his first argument is the Catholic Church is the inventor of book licensing, so why would we want to do it like they did, right? Um, and then the second one was reading is a necessary acquisition of good and evil in a fallen world. In other words, it's unavoidable to some degree. So uh, how do we know that one book is worse than another one? But he has several arguments under that. And then he also said, the, you know, by the way, the order was ineffectual in, in this particular case, scandalous, seditious, and libelous books. And then last but not least, the one that we're interested in, the order will discourage learning and the pursuit of truth. Because Milton saw that freedom and truth were very closely linked. Um, I found this quotation uh, very interesting because there's a, a strong parallel with Ellen White. Uh, I'll just read it to you. Many there be that complain of divine providence for suffering Adam to transgress. Foolish tongues. When God gave him reason, he gave him freedom to choose. For reason is but choosing. He had been else a mere artificial Adam, such an Adam as he is in the motions. So you have to think what he means by motions. We ourselves esteem not of that obedience or love or gift, which is of force. God therefore left him free, set before him a provoking object ever almost in his eyes. Herein consisted his merit. Herein the right of his reward, the praise of his abstinence. So when he says, as he is in the motions, um, there were lots of, uh, in the, in the 17th century, there were, there were people who would try to, uh, produce mechanical machines, right? And so this idea of, of something in motion, uh, has, has to do with that. Now I'd like to show you a quotation by Ellen White that I found in Patriarchs and Prophets that carries an echo of this idea. There are thousands today echoing the same rebellious complaint against God. They do not see that to deprive man of the freedom of choice would be to rob him of his prerogative as an intelligent being and make him a mere automaton. It is not God's purpose to coerce the will. Man was created a free moral agent. One of the things that I discovered when I was reading Milton, um, after a, a quick trip down to Andrews for a, a proto-interview kind of thing, I discovered that there is a pamphlet, uh, somebody thought to take an inventory of Ellen White's writings or I'm sorry, Ellen White's books in her library at the time of her death. And um, that's an important document because it's, it doesn't prove that she read anything, but it sort of shows that it's possible that she could have read something. How many of you think that it's, it, it's uh, possible that Ellen White had a copy of Paradise Lost in her library at the point of death? In fact, she did. <laughs> I thought that was very interesting. So it's, it's very possible and probable that Ellen White was reading Milton. Here are some other ideas from Areopagitica. Of course, we have the importance of intellectual diversity. Milton believed very strongly that it was in the diversity of opinion that we find any grain of truth. So this idea, of course, is familiar to some of us, right? The idea of unity and diversity. Um, and so, again, this sort of tradition going on here. We have Ellen White writing in the 19th century, but um, she's writing in a tradition, uh, others had believed that before. 
Uh, he believed in the complex and necessary interplay between good and evil in a fallen world. Um, how do we know good? He said, by evil, because Adam, in a certain sense, uh, found out w- what good was because or through evil, right? So that's, that was his, his logic. Um, and then he also believed in the importance of even wrong ideas, because even if somebody has a wrong idea, who knows later on maybe that idea would flourish and, and sort of look more like truth later. And then his, uh, one of the, one of the um, pieces of Areopagitica I really wanted to bring out, he was very interested in the educated prophets of the Bible, Moses, Daniel, and Paul, because they were skillful in all the learning of the Egyptians, Chaldeans, and the Greeks. And um, he also mentioned Paul thought it no defilement to insert into Holy Scripture the sentences of three Greek poets and one of them a, a, tra- a tragedian. So he wanted, uh, he, he was trying to defend this idea that, you know, we shouldn't read certain books because they have evil in them, because it could be that maybe there's a truth within that knowledge that we need to see. He believed it was wrong to forejudge authors, in other words, uh, because we don't know, uh, what, you know, it's, what, if, what if some of these authors were writing for God and we didn't know that, we found out later. So uh, that was one of his ideas. Okay, and this, I just thought I would share this with you. It's sort of uh, uh, how Milton becomes almost uh, satirical, and uh, he takes the, the book licensing to its logical extreme here, and it's actually quite humorous. He says, if we think to regulate printing, thereby to rectify manners, so if that's our interest, we're trying to rectify manners, we must regulate all recreations and all pastimes, all that is delightful to man. No music must be heard, no song be said or sung, but what is grave and Doric? There must be licensing of dancers, that no gesture, motion, or deportment be taught our youth. But what by their allowance shall be thought honest? For such Plato was provided of. It will ask more than the work of twenty licensers to examine all the lutes, the violins, and the guitars in every house. They must not be suffered to prattle as they do, but must be licensed what they may say. And who shall silence all the airs and madrigals that whisper softness in the chambers? Even the songs that people emit into the air should be licensed, in other words. The windows also, the balconies, must be, must be thought on. There are shrewd books with dangerous frontispieces set to sale. Who shall prohibit them? Shall 20 licensers? So this idea that we can try to stop error just because of licensing. Milton believed that ultimately truth would win out. No matter what, what the ideas were, that somehow truth was strong enough to win out. For who knows not that truth is strong next to the Almighty? She needs no policies, no stratagems, no licensings to make her victorious. Those are the shifts and the defenses that error uses against her power. Give her but room, and do not bind her when she sleeps. For then she speaks not true, as the old Proteus did, who spake oracles only when he was caught and bound. But then, rather, she turns herself into all shapes, except for her own, and perhaps tunes her voice according to the time, as Micaiah did before Ahab, until she be abjured into her own likeness. The idea here is that truth could take on different shapes, and they might not always be recognizable. So he mentions two stories here. One is Old Proteus. Old Proteus was a, um, a story of a sea god, and uh, the, the story goes that he could tell you your, your uh, future, He could tell you the truth about your future, but you had to catch him first. He didn't really want to do that. He had to be caught. And he would, just as you would try to catch him, he would change shape. He would change a form into something else. And so this is, uh, this is the, uh, 
model that Milton is using here. So he can answer questions for you, but you have to capture him first, and, it's, and he's very slippery. He can get away from you. The other story is from the Old Testament. Now, Milton does this in his work all the time. He mixes classical with biblical imagery and uh, trying to make his point. Do you remember the Old Testament story about Micaiah going before Ahab and what happened? Uh, the reason I want to show you this story today is because it serves, I think, as a backdrop for what Milton is going to do in Paradise Lost, where he tears the curtain back and we see heaven and earth relating. And to Milton, it was very important that uh, the, the uh, intercommunication between heaven and earth. And, and that's, it was important before the fall, but it was also important after the fall. So he was very interested in how heaven was watching earth and what was happening between the two worlds. So, but the idea here that Milton is trying to get across is that truth can often come in the shape of a lie, or, or at least we might think it's a lie at first. Um, so, or, or maybe a lie is used and then God can work his truth through the lie. Okay, so, but again, that, that, uh, the backdrop opening and we see heaven and earth communicating and we see the source of this story uh, sort of unfolding. Okay, so the idea that truth can take a variety of shapes, even the shape of a lie, therefore freedom to print unlicensed books is all the more important because what we may think of as a lie may actually be truth in disguise. Even if what we read is evil or erroneous, God can still bring blessing out of it. So this is Milton's uh, major argument. Uh, so his argument that, that God can use a lie to bring about truth is related to an idea that we will see in Paradise Lost, and that is the doctrine of the fortunate fall. Uh, this idea that um, because of the fall, uh, there will be greater good uh, to mankind uh, than, than there would have been if there had not been a fall. Uh, and, and so then I just wanted to ask the question, uh, might not it be harder to disentangle truth from lies than we realize? Maybe that was Milton's point. Maybe he was trying to show that, you know, it's, it's, uh, lies are very subtle, and sometimes truth is subtle too. How do we know the difference? How do we disentangle that? It might be harder than we think. Yes, this idea of freedom of choice uh, for Milton was really central to his theology, to his life, and uh, to his poetry, especially in Paradise Lost, uh, when he's trying to explain the reason for, uh, you know, pain and, and um, sin in the world. And one of the things that he, he keeps espousing is this idea that um, it's not really possible to, to be free unless reason is at the center of your being, unless reason is, uh, is um, governing your passions, for example. So uh, he really believed that reason, there's a, a strong relationship between reason and freedom of choice. Okay, so, so then we, we could say a truth in the shape of a lie or a lie in shape of truth, right? And this is the sort of introduction to, to uh, Paradise Lost. Uh, Milton had a hard time deciding on a story uh, to write. He, wanted, he's, he had always wanted to write an epic, but uh, in his youth, he got, he got caught up with the story of King Arthur, and he thought that he would someday write what we call an Arthuriad. Um, but after... After uh, take, life t- kind of took its toll on him, he, he got more serious, I guess we might say. And um, he had a reason for, for writing the story, many reasons for writing the story that he chose. Um, we we want to look at Paradise Lost as not only a poem, but it's also a, a narrative, it's a story. And so when we think of those terms um, from, from a, I guess from the English standpoint, from, from a, 
a study standpoint, uh, there, there are some differences that we might want to look at. Also, um, Paradise Lost also serves, although it's not written this way, it serves as a drama. It's, it's really a, uh, sort, it, it could be staged so easily in, in many ways. And so we have dramatic monologues, especially by Satan. I don't know if we'll have time to look at Satan's soliloquy, but this is where he has lament and regret for his choice. Uh, and, and he really has, I mean, it's amazing how Milton writes in his, his uh, sorrow. And uh, although he does eventually affirm him, him, his, uh, his choice, but he goes back and forth a lot. And so we, we, we kind of see that, especially even, even in the deceptions that he's using. Okay, uh, we can also read Paradise Lost as a theodicy. Uh, so, so looking at you know what is the reason for our our suffering here on Earth, and so Milton is interested in in raising that question. Okay, so looking at narrative or the story, which actually comes from the same word as history. So the the chronology of events. Although Paradise Lost is not, does not follow chronological order, you, have, you actually start out with Satan, and he's in Pandemonium. That's his lake of fire place. And so there's this sort of underworld that we start with. And then we move to heaven, and then we shift back to the new earth, and then we go back to heaven. And so we're sort of always between the two worlds in Paradise Lost. And through that narrative, which is 12 books long, we get the chronology. Okay, so it was also a drama. Um, now, Milton did not uh, perform this or, or have it performed, but, but it really, the way that it's written, it could really um, be set up as a drama. And of course, it's an epic, which means that it has to have a hero, and a hero, a hero's action. So the hero has to do something heroic. So that leads to the question, who is the hero of Paradise Lost, which is what a lot of people have asked. And just a quick look at some of the um, some some of the aspects of narrative and, and of poetry as well. So in narrative, we have movements, we have a plot. There should be a sort of climax. There's a point where the, the tension is the highest, and then uh, somehow that's resolved. And we have char- characters in the narrative, very similar to what we have in drama. A sense of expectation and point of view, and that point of view is very important in Milton because we, we actually get to see very, very uh, closely into Satan's mind. We don't get into God's mind, and we get a little bit into Adam's mind. But So we have uh, a, a point of view that is interesting. Uh, the narrator is not omniscient, but uh, maybe partially omniscient. He can go into different minds, and we can kind of see what people are thinking. The poem... We call poem kind of a strange language. That's how we define poetry. That it's it's uh, written in such a sense. It's it's, it's a, a usage of language that is what we call strange, and so you recognize poetry. So we recognize a line of poetry from a line of of just regular prose. Now, when I say encrypted meanings and symbolic meanings and imagery and all those things, uh, I'm not trying to tell you that that stories don't contain those. But poems are kind of supposed to contain those. So uh, that's sort of the specialness of the poem. And then the idea of drama with the performance element, the stage effects, 
uh, audience distance. And the last is the most important thing of all, the collapse of time and space between the audience and the stage through what we call suspension of disbelief. So just for a moment, just for this particular moment, we're going to pretend that the actors are not actors, that the setting is, is really the actual scene, and we have gone to that place and time, and we are looking at what's unfolding before us. We're going to choose to believe that. Okay, here are the characters of Paradise Lost in order of their appearance. So actually, Beelzebub is the first one who speaks. And Beelzebub in, in Milton's uh, Paradise Lost is actually the second in command to Satan. And then we have um, sin and death are also characters. They respond. Actually, sin is spawned by Satan and death is spawned by sin. And so they're his children, uh, so to speak, and his grandchildren, a child and grandchild. And uh, we have the father and we have the son. Now, Milton does not refer to the Son as Christ. He's the Son because he's pre-incarnate. So uh, Milton refers to him as the Son. And we have angels. Now, I know that Dr. Tonstad has been talking about how um, when he draws his, his diagram of the three points, God and humans and then angels, he said that um, a lot of people ignore the angel part. But Milton definitely does not ignore angels. Milton is very, very interested in angels. He's almost a little too interested in angels in a certain sense. Um, but, of course, dialogues about angels were, that they were going on in the 17th century. So, um, you know, they, they had all kinds of crazy ideas about them. But Milton was very interested in, in them, and so he gives them names. And, by the way, the names of Satan's hosts are taken from the Bible for the gods, of the evil gods, or, sorry, I'm sorry, the gods of, of the heathens. So, uh, so you see you know, Moloch, for example, as one of uh, Satan's hosts. The idea being that behind the gods, there, there was really maybe an angel entity. Okay, so again, this idea, who is the hero of Paradise Lost? Well, we have a description of Satan here, and this is sort of the description of Satan as he is. But then we're going to, see, we're going to look at Satan in disguise, and so we're, we're going to see him take on uh, various disguises. With head uplift above the wave and eyes of sparkling blaze, his other parts beside prone on the flood, extended long and large, lay floating many a rood, in bulk as huge as whom the fable's name of monstrous size. These, these words like monstrous and bulk are there to describe Satan. So stretched out huge in length, the archfiend lay, chained on the burning lake. That's how we get introduced to Satan in Paradise Lost. There's a section in Paradise Lost where Satan travels from pandemonium to heaven and actually even to the sun. And it's very interesting because, of course, during this time, there, there are questions about whether the world or the universe is heliocentric. And so Milton inscribes that idea right into the discourse. It's very interesting uh, what happens to him. He meets uh, Uriel, who is, the, is sort of the, the station manager of the sun, and Uriel is also an angel. And the way that Uriel travels is he rides on sunbeams. So uh, he can go from point A to point B pretty quickly. And uh, it also kind of gives you a sense of Milton's imagination, right? And so uh, the first disguise that Satan has is as a holy angel. And he talks to Uriel. He's trying to find out about the new world that God has created and where it might be. And he disguises himself as a, as a holy angel so that he can get instructions. Because, because of course, the, the uh, good angels have been instructed by God, be careful, you know, uh, don't give Satan any 
any um, extra information. Okay, um, here's uh, the first, uh, sorry, the first disguise once he gets into the Garden of Eden. One gate there only was, and that looked east. On the other side, which then the archfelon saw, due entrance he disdained, and in contempt, at one slight bound high overleaped all bound, of hill or highest wall, and sheer within lights on his feet, as when a prowling wolf, whom hunger drives to seek new haunt for prey, watching where shepherds pen their flocks at eve, in hurtled coats amid the field secure, leaps o'er the fence with ease into the fold. Okay, so he's likening Satan here to uh, those robbers that jump over the fences from John 10 into the fold and steal, steal sheep. And he's doing that for a reason, because he's writing his political ideas into the text, and he's trying to hope that other people will see what's happening with the church-state issue. Uh, but at the same time, uh, what we're looking at is the disguise. And so um, this, is, this is actually one of my favorite parts of Paradise Lost because it's very imaginative. He, first of all, there's, this, there's, a, there's a gate there, but Satan decides he's not going to take the gate. He's too angry about everything. So he's not going to take the gate and he's just going to jump over the wall. Okay. Okay, so his first disguise is as a cormorant. Or as a thief bent to unhoard the cash of some rich burger whose substantial doors, cross-barred and bolted fast, fear no assault, in at the window climbs, or o'er the tiles, so clomb this first grand thief into God's fold, so since into his church lewd hirelings climb. Thence up he flew, and on the tree of life, the middle tree, and highest there that grew, sat like a cormorant, yet not true life thereby regained, but sat devising death to them who lived. No one, no on the virtue thought of that life-giving plant, but only used for prospect. What well used had been the pledge of immortality. Okay, so he's sitting there on the tree of life, which could have had so much good uh, to give him, but he's, he's devising death instead. Oh hell, what do my eyes with grief behold? Into our room of bliss, thus high advanced, creatures of other mold, earth-born perhaps, not spirits, yet to heavenly spirits, bright, little inferior, whom my thoughts pursue with wonder and could love, so lively shades in them divine resemblance, and such grace the hand that formed them on their shape hath poured. Ah, gentle pair, ye little think how nigh your change approaches, when all those delights will vanish, and deliver ye to woe, more woe, the more your taste is now of joy. Okay, so again, you see him uh, going back and forth a little bit between his grief, um, you know, for what he lost, and then also his, his affirmation of what he's going to do, his, his devisings. And, and we will see this uh, again. This is, you know, when, he's, when he spots Adam and Eve, he, he is very amazed by them and knows them because of, their, uh, because of how much they look like God. Then from his lofty stand on that high tree, down he alights among the sportful herd of those four-footed kinds, himself now one, now other, as their shape serve best his end, Nearer to view his prey, and unespied, to mark what of their estate he more might learn, by word or action marked. About them round, a lion now he stalks with fiery glare, 
than is a tiger who by chance hath spied in some purlieu two gentle fawns at play. Okay, so we almost need a motion picture cartoon for this, right? He's, uh, he leaps down from the tree and he becomes an animal. And as he's moving in closer to Adam and Eve, he, he keeps cha- changing shapes of animals. And so finally he's a tiger and he's kind of circling around the middle as if he would just devour them at any point. This is actually one of my favorite parts. I think it's just very imaginative. Of course, they didn't have the motion picture industry back in Milton's day, but I bet you know he would have had fun with that. Okay, so he's trying to spy on them at this point. He wants to hear any detail that he might use against them. And, of course, it's just that moment when those two are talking about uh, the fact that they can't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So he picks up on that detail because he changed forms and they couldn't detect him. Okay, so at this point, uh, we have heaven's angels alerted. And what happens is Gabriel, who is sort of the commander of the army, he uh, is going to send two angels down to earth because uh, Uriel Uriel knew that it was Satan eventually. He was deceived at first, but he knew it was Satan because he watches Satan uh, fly to a a certain sort of mountain in in the outer space. And he sees sees Satan sort of, uh, his face, his facial configurations changing. He looks angry. He's shaking his fist, that kind of thing. And he realizes that he just gave the information. So he, he goes back to Gabriel. He tells Gabriel. And now Gabriel is going to send two angels down to earth, to the earth to try to find him. Okay, so this is what they find. I'll read this one. So saying, on he led his radiant files, dazzling the moon. These to the bower direct in search of, the, of what they sought. Him there they found, squat like a toad, close at the ear of Eve. By the way, Adam and Eve are sleeping at this point. And, and so Satan is a toad at this point, whispering ideas into the ear of Eve while she sleeps. Uh, and, and what he's whispering is the idea that she should separate from her husband basically the next day so he can, he can uh, have, do what he's uh, planning to do. So uh, we'll, just, uh, we'll just move on from here. Um, and, and then um, I'll just read the slide. So spake the enemy of mankind, enclosed in serpent, inmate bad, and toward Eve addressed his way, not with indented way. This is uh, about the temptation at this point, but we're going to see his form now. We're going to see him in, in the serpent form. And this is what he looks like. Prone on the ground, as since, but on his rear, Circular base of rising folds that towered fold above fold, a surging maze. His head crested aloft and carbuncle his eyes. With burnished neck of verdant gold, erect amidst his circling spires that on the grass floated redundant, pleasing was his shape and lovely, never sense of serpent kind lovelier. With tract oblique at first as one who sought access but feared to interrupt, sidelong he works his way. This idea that, you know, yes, he's moving sidelong in a certain sense over the grass, but he's also moving sidelong instead of straight on in a sort of truthful way. So um, in this case, I, I saw a parallel here with the idea that this, the, the uh, snake was once a, a much more beautiful creature. And in, I, didn't, I don't know if I included it here, but uh, in another passage, he actually indicates that, that the serpent had wings. And so I'm not sure if this is where we get that idea of, of the serpent having wings or being very beautiful. 
When contrary, he hears on all sides from innumerable tongues. Okay, this is, this is a, a, what's happened is the temptation has happened. Eve had, and Adam have fallen. And now Satan is victorious. He goes back to pandemonium where all his angels are. And he gives his victory speech. And he's expecting that they're going to give him this great applause. But what happens is instead of applause, he hears this hiss, this hissing noise. And uh, as he looks out, he sees that his angels have all been transformed into snakes. And then he's, he finds himself being transformed into a snake as well. So at the end of this passage, he actually uh, becomes a snake himself. And it, it's, it calls him a monstrous serpent on his belly prone. This is interesting. I actually found a relationship in uh, etymology between the idea of snake and dragon. That, um, you know, a, a dragon is sort of the idea of a bigger snake. So when we say he, he transforms from the snake to the dragon, essentially. And so then he, uh, he has the... He, he, uh, he's still considered the leader, even though he's now uh, this, this hideous beast of a dragon. And all of his followers, now snakes, they all follow him out to this field. And in the field, there are trees that look like the tree of life. Okay? There stood a grove nearby, sprung up with this, their change. His will who reigns above to aggregate their penance. So this idea that God is going to sort of give them due for what they did. Um, laden with fair fruit like that which grew in paradise, the bait of Eve used by the tempter, on that prospect strange their earnest eyes they fixed, imagining for one forbidden tree a multitude now risen to work them further woe or shame. Yet parched with scalding thirst and hunger fierce, though to delude them sense could not have seen. But on they rolled in heaps and up the trees climbing, sat thicker than the snaky locks that curled Megara. Greedily they plucked the fruitage fair to sight, like that which grew near that uh, bituminous lake where Sodom flamed. This more delusive, not the touch but taste, with spattering noise rejected. Off they essayed, hunger and thirst constraining, drugged as off, with hateless disrelish, writhed their jaws with soot and cinder filled. So they climbed the trees, they try to grab the fruit, and all they get is ashes instead. And of course, I was alluding to Dr. Tonstad's talk about um, at some point, you know, there's going to be an end. This is, uh, Milton is sort of pointing to the future here. Satan will not always reign on earth, and uh, there will be an end, and he will too bite the dust, right? Okay? Um, and the reason for, for all this is, is, for, is about pride, right? Because that's how Satan started. Uh, so, this idea of, of uh, sort of God giving them this, their due was to punish their, their pride. Okay, so um, that was all I had for the PowerPoint part. Uh, next week, of course, Dr. Tonsa will be back, and then I'll probably follow up with Milton the following week. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>